You are now listening to Portionality Podcast, a podcast dedicated to faith, culture, and that roller coaster we like to call adulting. I am your host, Portia D. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Portionality Podcast. I am super excited for this episode because I have a extremely special guest on today. All my guests are special, but this special guest is one in particular that I'm super excited to have on the show. And it is none other than the Reverend Jamie D. Crumley. Yes, I'm so excited that Jamie is here on the show with us. Just a little bit of background about Jamie. She is an ordained minister in the American Baptist Church USA. She is a student in the doctoral program at UCLA in gender studies. She is hailing from Northern Virginia by way of the army because she's a military brat. Yes. She's a graduate of Wellesley University, uh, Wellesley College in 2012. She's also a graduate 2015 and 2016 of Yale University in the Divinity School. And she is the author of Her Body Bears the Word, a body love theology. And she's also the founder and curator of I Am Free Agent blog and consulting firm. And she is also the co-host of the one and the only Just Two Pearls podcast. And so if you've been following me for any length of time, you know that I'm also her co-host on Just Two Pearls. And I am super excited that Jamie is here with me. And so welcome to the show, Jamie D. Crumley. Thank you so much, Portia. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. I'm so happy that you agreed to be here. And I mean, we podcast together all the time and we've been podcasting for almost two years now. And it has been one of the greatest joys and highlights of my time post-seminary, like for real. It really has been a joy. And for those who don't know, who may not listen to the podcast, I urge you to go listen to the podcast, first of all. Like, what are you doing? Get your life. So go check it out. But if you don't know, Jamie and I actually met in 2012, which is almost six years now. We met in our first year of Divinity School, and we've been cool good girlfriends ever since. And we are now in business together, podcasting together, and just trying to take over the world, like Pinky and the Brain. Okay, <laughs> you know, one podcast episode at a time, you know, we're ready for total <laughs> world domination. <laughs> and so <laughs> I heard the reference to Pinky and the Brain in so long. Oh, my goodness. Girl, wasn't it such a great show? It was the 90s. <laughs> Children these days, they don't know nothing about that life. Like they don't know like that Pinky and the Brain was like it like that. And Animaniac Saturday morning cartoons like they don't do that anymore. They don't. They really don't. But today, Jamie and I are going to get down on some good old culture and some faith conversation on today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, Me Too, Black Church, Women in Ministry. And the reason why we're having this conversation. So if you don't know, which you should know if if you haven't been living under a rock, that it has been 50 years since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And so... All of these events that have been happening, kind of just commemorating his legacy and just remembering uh, his assassination and the legacy that he has left us. There has been some talk about, well, Dr. King was not the only one in that movement, particularly his daughter. She shared how he was the face of this movement, but he wasn't the only one who was in this movement. And there were so many people behind him and uh, alongside him, not even behind, but alongside him, right? So we've seen people like Baynard Rustin. We've seen people like Andrew Young. We've seen people like 
Ralph David Abernathy. But not even just them. We've also seen some awesome women who are also in the movement. Women like Ella Baker, Dorothy Cotton, Diane Nash, just to name a few. There were so many women working in this time period. And I think it's about time that we start naming some of these women because, and just naming some of the women in the movement. Because right now we're seeing so many movements around the world. We see movements from Me Too with Sister Tarana Burke, right? We see the Women's March. We see movements with our young people with Enough is Enough and March for Our Lives. We see movements with Malala, with young girls in Pakistan getting the education that they deserve. And we see people like um, in our own context, I would give a big shout out to Reverend Dion, who is leading the Bring Back Our Girls movement for the girls who were kidnapped in Nigeria. There are so many women who are on the ground running. And I'm just naming just a few women. There are tons of women who are really leading the conversation and leading on the on the front lines of social justice. And so we're going to kind of just have some conversation about that on today. And so because Jamie is a black feminist expert, like she knows black feminism and she knows womanism and I love all things womanism. And so I really want to have this conversation with Jamie in particular. And plus she's also a study studying at UCLA and gender studies. And um, Jamie, if you don't mind, can you share some more with us about your research in particular of uh, the work that you do around 19th century women? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So my work focuses on black Christian women. I look specifically at Christian women. Uh, a lot of my peers are focusing on, you know, other social demographics that unite the women that they work on. But for me, I focus specifically on Christian women in the antebellum period, which is the period before the end of slavery. So late 18th century through the middle of the 19th century. And what I'm focusing on is the ways that these women framed notions of freedom. I look at women who were free, who were living in northern cities, especially Boston in particular is one of my focus cities. And I just look at the way that they were constructing in a time of slavery, notions of freedom, notions of what it looks like to have agency. Um, that phrase, I am free agent, I got that actually from writing my master's thesis and looking at Mariah W. Stewart, who was a free woman who was living in Boston and was known for her public discourse in the public square, which was super, super wrapped up in religious ideas, notions of respectability, for better or for worse. And also just the ideas that black women needed to come together, that they needed to advocate for themselves, that they should no longer bury their heads under oppression. They should not be buried under men, black or white. And she really fought for this notion of if black women are being discriminated against, we need to band together. We need to educate ourselves. We need to practice religion and we need to sue for our rights. And so kind of with that inspiration that Mariah W. Stewart did, and this was like the 1820s, and I think that she is severely under theorized both in the academy and outside of the academy and so she's kind of my starting point that i always come back to when i'm looking for examples of black feminism in the 19th century especially in the early 19th century but there are so many women around her and i've kind of read scholarship while i was in divinity school working on my master of sacred theology degree where essentially scholars were saying oh like clearly she was the only one doing this work and to me it's readily apparent that no woman is in isolation doing work by herself. So I love it that you're bringing up all these different movements that young people are involved in, that women are taking leadership in, because in as much as we say phrases like behind every strong man, there's a stronger woman or smarter woman or whatever, however that phrase is, 
the reality is that also behind every strong and powerful woman, there is a community of other strong and powerful women who are doing the work, who are, for whatever reason, mostly sexism, racism in the case of the black community, classism often, are not being named. And those women need to be named, and the time is now. So I consider my work to be a, a project of historical reclamation and really looking seriously at theological works on their own terms. A lot of feminist scholarship, unfortunately, it sidelines or kind of reads around theology, and I think that's a bad thing. I think theology does have political implications, so I really want to take theological language on its own terms, historicize it, try to make sense of it, and go from there. So I'm really excited to be part of this conversation with you today, Portia. Awesome. And so when you talk about the church and theology and being political, right, and mm-hmm. the, and how theology and politics kind of merge, when we think about Me Too and we think about the outcries of women and sexual violence and sexual abuse, right, and we're thinking about how this is playing out on the political landscape, we've seen things with our very unfortunate president and how he's a perpetrator, right, in this sexual violence, how he has contributed to sexual culture and the violence of sexual culture, right? How do we as the church, right, knowing that there are roots and knowing that there are some unearthing even in our own churches, not just in the black church, but the church universal, how do we engage the conversation of sexual violence, not just as a political thing, but also as a theological rhetoric? Like, how do we have that conversation? How do we engage that? Not even just for women, but how do men even have this conversation? Because it seems to me that... We've been sweeping this under the rug for far too long. And we've been seeing uh, Hollywood take on this conversation. And you being in Los Angeles, you probably see a lot of this, how women are actually in the industry coming out and telling their stories. But I also wonder, where is the conversation happening in our churches? And what should be the response, not just politically, but also theologically? Right. So I think that's a really interesting question. I think about... The TV show Greenleaf, which is on its own network. I'm not sure if you've seen that show, Portia. Mm-hmm. It's been on for a few years now. So if you all have not seen it, it's on Netflix. Get yourself some Netflix and watch Greenleaf. And part of what's really interesting to me about that show is that this story of sexual violence is really at the root of what causes the original drama in that show. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's a, it's a show about a black family and their business is running a church. And kind of the ways that they are trying to hide and get around that violence, the way that they're trying to come to terms with that violence, because it's impacted every single member of the family, male or female. And Portia, I'm glad that you named that, because first of all, we need to name that men and boys are sexually abused, not just women. And unfortunately, I think the conversation that we've had in the dominant culture has been extraordinarily heteronormative and makes it sound like there are old white men who are preying upon young women in the workplace, and that's it. And that's not the full extent of the story. Uh, We know that LGBT people are at very, very high risk. We know that uh, women of color are at extraordinarily high risk. We know that um, men and boys are at high risk, especially if they're members of the LGBT community. So I think we need to name that. But even for men who have not been touched by sexual violence directly, um, we're touched indirectly, right? By sisters, by friends, by girlfriends, you know, partners. Uh, mothers who have been impacted by sexual violence. And I think Greenleaf really shows the full extent to which that stands out and the ways that churches at times have been complicit in hiding 
sexual violence, allowing sexual predators to go free, and for that violence to potentially happen to others. And if not, it becomes an open secret and there ends up being fear in the midst of a congregation or community of faith. And that's a bad thing. And a lot of the drama of Greenleaf stems from the fact that no one will name what has happened. And I think that's the first thing. We need to get to a place where we stop being afraid, where we stop being ashamed, because the reality is these things have happened. And we need to tell the truth about it so that they don't continue to happen and so that we can start the process of healing. And I think in terms of, you know, spiritually, what can we do? There are texts of terror in the Bible, and we've talked about this um, on our podcast, Jesse Pro. Um, but we've talked about the texts of terror, and uh, if you aren't familiar with what those are, there's a book by Phyllis Triple. You can look it up. It's called Texts of Terror. Uh, but just think about, uh, you know, like the, the, the story of Tamar, um, is a great example. The story of the concubine who her, uh, she is cut into several pieces and sent out. And after she had been raped all night and, you know, part of that story is also that this man allowed his daughter to go out and also be raped all night. So part of it is I think in the church, we have to stop refusing to read those stories. And I'm not saying that those should be our Sunday morning sermon every Sunday. Let's, let's not, but let's, engage in real sustained conversation let's have bible studies that are about sex and sexuality let's have bible studies that are about sexual violence let's have support groups that people know that the church is a safe place where they can come and say these things and where most importantly they will be believed not everyone is ready to come out and tell their story for various reasons Um, but we need to allow the church to be a space where people know that they will be believed and that people actually care about them in the context of their church Mm, yeah, that's really, really good, uh, particularly as as you just ended with in the context of their church, right? And so when I think particularly as it relates to black church, right, and we know uh, the the growingly famous hashtag amongst uh, black church study right now is if not for the women, right? And so thinking about black women literally in the church and thinking about these texts of terror uh, you know, that, that kind of sit uncomfortable for sometimes for us as women. It's like, wow, like this text, which is supposed to be liberating, that's supposed to be loving on us. But then yet you see these texts that are harmful to women and harmful to quote unquote minorities in the text. But when I, I also want us to consider uh, the bodies and women literally putting their lives on the line for the one, the sake of the church and two, for the sake of the movement. And so, Jamie, I'm interested in hearing some of your thoughts about people, women in particular, physically putting their bodies on the line. And what's at stake when we do those things, like when we put our bodies out on the line, whether it's frontline of the protest or whether it's, you know, being an usher in in the at church, you know, and when you're an usher, you're literally being like a gatekeeper. And so you're body is literally on the lines of the church in worship. And so I'm thinking through, and I would love to hear your thoughts about what does it mean for us as women to put our bodies on the line for the sake of the church and for the sake of these movements? Oh my gosh, that girl, that question hits very close to home. And it actually reminds me of a lecture that Ebony Marshall Terman, who now is a professor at Yale, was a professor at Duke at the time. Um, but you might remember that a couple years before she actually officially interviewed for the position at Yale, uh, she very graciously came to the Divinity School 
and she did a lecture, and this was kind of right at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, and she was talking about this imitation of black women being slain in the spirit at church and then having die-ins in the street, right? So black women are literally slain in the spirit at church, and then they are literally slain representing the fallen bodies of black people um, who at that point in the movement were overwhelmingly seen as male, but we now know are both male, female, trans, right, falling into various communities. But this idea of being slain in the spirit that happens uh, in the church and in the street, right? And we're and we're bringing this rhetoric of being slain in the spirit that, you know, like this this idea just of black female bodies being slain, right? Which we know from the plantation, which we know from the church, which we know from the streets, which we know from the workplace, right? And it's it's all connected, which is part of why I'm saying that we need to understand churches as religious as, as, as excuse me, not just as religious spaces, but also as political spaces. Um, because it all ties together, right? Part of the work that the church does is extremely political work. So to get specifically to your question, um, the example that comes to mind is Fannie Lou Hamer. And there's this picture that I love of Fannie Lou Hamer, which one of my professors uh, before, when I came as an admitted student, before I actually kind of committed to come to UCLA, uh, I was in her office. And I just knew that she was the right person for me to come work with. <laughs> she had worked with a professor who I studied with a little bit when I was at Yale. But she had this uh, picture of Fannie Lou Hamer on her wall, among other pictures of black women that she has all over her office. I love anybody who has pictures of black women all over their office. I'm like, yes. But anyway, she had that picture of Fannie Lou Hamer, and it's pretty, a pretty iconic picture, where Fannie Lou Hamer is walking down the street and she has her her, her fist balled up, right? And you can just see the power in her body. And, you know, she's not doing anything particularly radical other than walking down the street. But when you look at the picture, you can almost hear the hymns that she's singing. And you can see her body literally being put on the line. And, you know, we think about the work of people like Horton Spillers, who talks about the degendering of the black female body that happens from the time we were taken away from our African homeland and just treated as chattel, right? We were do doing the work that was seen as masculine. And that's a problem because black men weren't even seen as masculine, right? Within this system, they're not seen as men. So then what does that do? What kind of degendering does that do to the black female body? We think about the, the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, how she was beaten in ways that we would probably call like a man, you know, that's not really the right phrase for it, but she's being beaten, not in the ways that you would expect a woman to be beaten, right? She's being brutally tortured in her body. And one of the things that sustains her is her faith in God, the singing of the hymns, the ability to connect uh, with Jesus in the midst of that struggle. And I'm not trying to lift that up as exemplary, like, oh yeah, all of us need to go be beaten in jail. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. But what I do want to say is that every time black female bodies are in public resisting, protesting, um, and even in the space of the church, right? When we stand to speak, right? Portia, you're, 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 you're an associate minister. Every time you stand to speak in a certain way, you're putting your body on the line because it's seen as this space that black women can't be in. And yet there you are physically putting your body on the line because you believe that God has given you this divine calling to do this work and so it's i think it's a pretty profound question uh you know kind of what is the work that the the resistance work that black women's bodies are doing in public in the church and i think it's such a multifaceted question and one thing that i would say also is you know i know you're an alice walker fan part of what i love about the color purple 
is it also expands our understanding of what church and religiosity are beyond the four walls of the church. So I do think what happens within the space of the four walls of the church is really important. But what's also really important is I think as black women, what we forget is that we hold the divine inside of us. So even when we are out and we're not in the context of church, there's still that divinity that's attached to it. So yeah, I think it's a really multi-layered question. I think that just kind of starts to answer the question. I'm not sure if I've fully answered it, but I love that question. Yeah, and I think you answered it with such grace. And I love what you just said, which is such a hashtag tweetable moment. And I hope, you know, everyone caught that, where you're saying as black women, we have the divine inside of us. And I think that's a great segue um, to talk about your text, you know, your book about body theology. And we actually talk about it in great length on Just Two Pearls podcast. But I also want to just, in the context of this conversation, um, to talk about what body theology is as you are a budding body theology uh, theologian, right? And so I think you are tapping into something that is on the rise. And I think you are doing the work of now, Jamie. I really do. I think that with all of these conversations of women putting their bodies on the line, with women put up bodies being abused, with men's bodies being abused, with the children's bodies being taken, like their lives being taken and their bodies uh, just being slain, whether it's, you know, through gun wounds or stabbings, right? You have all of these things um, happening to bodies. And I think about the broken body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's so much happening in the brokenness of the body. And I want to hear from you as you, um, shape what is body theology and where is the hope for us who see nothing but broken and terrorized bodies? Oh my goodness. So I, Gosh, that's such a complicated question. So and I'll start with the first one because I do know the answer to that. Um, my idea of body love theology is just an idea of having gratitude for our bodies, no matter what form they're in. I think we all have bodies that are imperfect in one way or another. And the goal of body love theology is to help us find that self-compassion, that love for what God has given us and you know, one thing that I always struggled with was the greatest commandment, right? As Jesus presents it during his life and ministry, um, which is, of course, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we talk about this in more detail um, on Just Two Pearls, but I will say here that one of the big challenges that I realized, you know, by the time I was in my early 20s, is that I was struggling with that second commandment. It, it was easy for me to love God. Uh, I think <laughs> black girls raised in church, a lot of us <laughs> are kind of like, okay, I got the love of God thing down. But beyond that, it's challenging. And part of the reason why it's challenging, I think, is because we've been taught not to love ourselves. Mm. I think, and disproportionately true as young black women, right? Um, from the way that society treats our bodies to our hair, to our intellect, to, you know, just, you know, even just in the context of school, being told, you cannot do this. You will never be good at that. Um, you start to tear yourself down. You start to believe that because you're imperfect, you're unlovable. And for me, I've had to come to a place, and, and it's a work in progress, right? I wake up every day and work on this. Just because I'm imperfect doesn't mean I'm unlovable. And that's something that I have to tell myself. Like I said, literally 
almost every day. Every time I kind of mess up on something that I feel like I should have down by now, I have to remind myself of that. So that's that's what I'm getting at with body love theology. What was the second part of the question, Portia? <laughs> About where do we begin to find the hope in body theology and then just the love in it? Like, where do we find that hope when all we see is terrorized bodies? Bodies that are broken, bodies that are abused, bodies that are slain, bodies that are damaged, right? Quote unquote damaged, right? What do, where do we find and begin to reconcile uh, with our relationships with God and with the sacrifice of Jesus? And where do we find hope in, in that? Like, mm-hmm. where is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's thing that I struggle with more and more every year. Uh, I, I, first of all, I want to kind of expand the notion of body beyond our physical bodies, even though that's what the book in particular is about. So I'm going to move away from that for a second and talk about just the theology of the church. And I think all too often we treat the church just as this space that tells us these theological ideas. You know, maybe we come there for, you know, the potluck or <laughs> to see our friends. But we don't think of church as a really important and necessary theological space, right? So, you know, we just had Easter. We think about the broken body of Jesus Christ, um, and we think about—we need to think about that book of Acts, right? Like, what was the work that the church was supposed to do in the physical absence of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is is with the church, right? Um, but not physically. And so, then, what kind of work does that mean that the church does? And you know, I love—I um, guess it's. First Corinthians, right? Um, the the maybe First Corinthians twelve, um, where we kind of get this this theology from Paul of we are one body, many members. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that theology of the church is just so essential. What does it mean that we are one body? What does it mean that if I'm in church and I'm disrespecting Portia, that I might be disrespecting the hands? <laughs> and right. I need the hands. You know, if I'm disrespecting, you know, the church mother, I might be disrespecting our eyes. Like, is that really what I'm trying to be doing right now? So how is it that we can learn to love each other as the body, right? Like, we are imperfect, but, like, with Jesus, we're going to be all right. So we need to learn how to stick together and actually treat each other like the body, right? Am I going to discard my ear just because it's not hearing as well as it did 20 years ago? Really? Because it might be hearing new and different things in the not hearing. So I think part of where we find hope is by deciding to band together as the body of Christ, right? For Like, stop trying to go at it alone. That's what so, I think where so many of us are going wrong. We, we watch the news. Um, we walk down the streets in our neighborhoods, and we start to feel like, oh, these are things I need to take on alone. No, the hope is that we serve a risen Savior. We do not serve a Savior who is still broken and hanging on the cross. We serve a risen Savior, right, who got up with all power in his hands. And so... That's the hope, I think, that we are not alone. We serve a risen Savior. We're part of communities, right? Even for those who are listening who do not belong to religious communities, you are still part of a community. You're not here on the planet by yourself. And we need to learn, whether it's in church, outside of church, reach out to people, form community, recognize that you're not alone, because if you were supposed to be here alone, you would be here alone, but you're not. You're surrounded by so many other living things that can be your supporters and advocates and friends in the challenges of this journey. So really, I would say that for me, the way that I answer the question of where we find hope, we find hope in looking at each other, right? Like, so Portia, no matter how 
terrible life scenes. I know that I have friends like you that I can call. You're a like-minded individual, right? And that, in large part, gets me through the day. You have Paris. <laughs> I'm sure Paris can help. Uh, we have, uh, both of us are blessed to have parents who help. Um, we have other friends who help. We have uh, church communities who help. We have classmates from college, from graduate school who can help. We have next-door neighbors who can help. So just stop feeling like you're in it alone. You're here with other incredible like-minded people. So even when we see things like a shooting, right, it, it, it makes me feel so much despair. And it's like almost every week you're hearing about shootings, you know, at various levels, big or small. But then I remember that I am loved, that I have neighbors, that I have friends, that I have family members. So we're never really alone. We're never really as isolated as we allow ourselves to believe that we are. And, you know, now talking to you about it, I'm, I'm realizing like that is part of the work of the enemy, right? To make us feel like, okay, no, you're isolated. You have to go at it alone. No, 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 no. God put us here to be in relationship with each other from the beginning. God looked at Adam and was like, okay, Adam just can't be just out here communing with these animals and these plants. I need to get them another person, right? So like, that's part of why we have other people on the planet with us, in my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. And speaking of other people on the planet, um, past, present, um, well, we don't even necessarily know who the future, but maybe even naming those young women who we can uh, look to in the future. And so um, my final question, uh, is, which is a never a final question, because I believe in guest repeats. Amen. <laughs> so get used to hearing Jamie's voice because Jamie will be back. And of course, you know, we're always talking on Just Two Pearls. But um, Jamie, I wanted to just um, to name in the space uh, the women who who we should know for those who are listening, who are some women that we should know. And so like, I will say in terms of like the, the past, I would say we need to know the names of Polly Murray and Prathia yep. Hall. Um, in terms of uh, the present, I think people need to know the name of Tarana Burke for a uh, mm -hmm. semi present, but also the future. I think people should know, you know, Yara Shahidi, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not just as an actress, but also as an activist. So I will uh, put it in your court to say, who are some women that we should be, we should know who they are. And we need to either one go get Google. If that's our only resource, because <laughs> Google is there, or, you know, if we have access to libraries and institutions that have resources, who should we be looking up in our spare time or just being more intentional about getting to know? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, Portia, I was living my best life on Saturday evening. I told you that. I don't know when this was coming out, but Saturday evening, April 7th. Because uh, I was, I was, I saw all y'all writing on Instagram about this Drake music video. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go watch this. And there were some like really dope women in that video. I was like, okay, okay. So I was living my best life because that's what I like to see. Uh, <laughs> so I would say share your platform, male or female, share your platform. Um, so in terms of past women, you know, it's really difficult because, like, you know, I can only name so many people here. Uh, some of y'all just need to look to your own grandmama. But um, I would say Mariah Stewart, who I named earlier, who I think is kind of my first, like, public black feminist who I would think of. Um, Phyllis Wheatley. I love Phyllis Wheatley. Um, I would say... Uh, just so many women, oh my gosh. Barbara Jordan, if you're looking for political figures, or Shirley Chisholm, if you're looking for political figures. Um, uh, so many artists from the past. There's so many people I can say. Nina Simone, I love Nina Simone. 
Um, and I would say Janelle Monet is a person who potentially points to kind of a present day version of some of the work that Nina Simone was doing. And who else would I think of? Oh my goodness, Portia, there's just like such a long list of people who I can name right now. There is such a great um, list of women, and I will even. Huh? Yeah. Um, I mean, Harriet Tubman, obviously. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of take a cursory look at her even during our childhoods, but like take a closer look at Harriet Tubman, take a closer look at Sojourner Truth. Uh, you know, especially those women who came out of slavery and were able to just accomplish so much. Um, you've already said the name Pauline Murray. That's a great person to look at. Uh, I'm trying to think about other 20th century people, Fannie Lou Hamer, who I named earlier. Um, yeah, and then in terms of the future, yeah, I mean, there are girls in Hollywood who are doing their thing. Um, the former editor of Teen Vogue, I'm sorry, her name is slipping my mind, but uh, she was a lot of, you know, I think a, a pretty central piece of having Teen Vogue in the past couple of years be really on the cutting edge of what contemporary feminism should and ought to look like. We have so many pastor friends who we could name who I think are cutting edge. They are the present. They are the future. Um, and yeah, Portia, you are the present and the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm out here striving. <laughs> but, but yeah, oh my goodness. There are just so many people who I can name because like I said, I think part of the issue that I'm having and you know, I'm, I'm presenting um, a paper at a conference in just a couple of weeks. Um, that's about the kind of uh, black feminist imaginaries that, oh, Jarena Lee, um, of Jarena Lee and um, Mariah W. Stewart. Um, but part of the reason why I think highlighting the work of these activists and theologians and preachers, Jarena Lee was a black female preacher, y'all. Um, part of the reason why I think it's important to highlight these women and elucidate these women and take their theology seriously is because what I see in the present moment is that it continues to be an issue that uh, black women's activism, black women preachers, and definitely women who, because of social class, right, never get the opportunities that Portia and I have received to be able to go to Yale Divinity School and kind of, there's a certain validation that comes with that, right, um, in terms of the way that society views us, right, not necessarily in terms of like, oh, now I'm validated because Yale says so, but in terms of that's the way that society views it, right, if you have this Yale degree, there's all of a sudden certain doors that are open to you that were closed before, and there are so many black women who, Portia, you and I know them who are in ministry, for whatever reason, they are not able to open those doors and be able to go get the theological degrees that they need. Some of them can't even get the college degrees that they need, but they're gifted and they're called. And it continues to be a problem. You know, even the Me Too movement is so old, right? But then, um, you know, it takes Hollywood actresses to make it a thing. And I'm glad Toronto Burke has been brought to the center, but she's been doing this work completely obscured for decades, right? And so there's just this really big question of, okay, so we know all this stuff about the past. We've done all this historical reclamation work, but what does it mean for our present? I think the lives of the women of the past continue to be unnamed and unknown and unheard. Our situation hangs in the balance with ours. Their situation hangs in the balance with ours. It is not an isolated incident that there are still so few black feminists in the academy. It's not an isolated incident that black feminist historiography is still not happening. It is not an isolated incident that when you look at places like the National Baptist Convention, it continues to look a lot like what Nanny Helen Bear Burroughs saw 
over 100 years ago, right, which is an overrepresentation of men and women being um, precluded from doing serious work, right? The women are the movement, and yet the women are being uh, neglected, obscured, pushed aside. This is a continuing struggle. And so the past has serious implications for our present. The way that we treat the past has serious implications for our present. So anyway, thank you so much for having me, Portia. <laughs> I am so glad, Jamie, that you were able to join me on Portionality Podcast. It just like makes my entire like evening. Like I'm so excited. Um, and I'm so glad that, you know, um, people are going to hear this and hear you and get to know you. And so, uh, Jamie, would you please let people know how can they get in touch with you? How can they find you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want people to find me um, using all the appropriate methods. <laughs> so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at JD Crumley, um, like Jamie D, JD Crumley. And on my website, I am freeagent.com. And of course, follow me and Portia together. Um, we are at Just Two Pearls on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can visit our website to find our podcast, or you can look us up on Apple Podcasts. Yes, and links to Jamie's contact information will be available in the description box. And I am so grateful that Jamie joined us today. And so thank you, Jamie. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Portia. I can't wait to come back. Yes. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Portionality Podcast. Can't wait to hear from you when you email me directly at portionality at gmail.com with your topics and with your listener questions. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at portionality. And as always, peace, light, and love, and namaste to you.